would appreciate that very much. I want you to turn in your Bibles back to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Going to the second part of our study in this uh, letter addressed to the church in Corinth. And last week we uh, spent time looking at verses 1 through 9, which are a reminder to the church of who they are. And what Paul's basically saying is this, who you are should be reflected in how you live. Let who you are in Christ, converted, redeemed, purified, affect the life that you live. Don't let there be a gap between profession and performance in life. So Paul's attempting to call this church that is filled with trouble. Because here's what you're going to notice. Most of Paul's letters are full of theology at the beginning. Usually up to 50% of the letter is theology, truth about God. And then he flips over to practical application about that truth to specific situations in life. This letter is different. Okay? He spends nine verses out of 16 chapters talking about, and really it's only the four through nine of that first section, about theology proper, who they are in Christ. And then he immediately begins to fall into the specific issues that are present in the church in Corinth that are deeply troubling to him because he is spiritually the father of the church in Corinth. He is responsible in Christ for their birth, for their coming into the kingdom of God. This morning I want to say this. If I, if I say, united we stand, what thought comes to mind? Divided we fall, okay? United we stand, divided we fall, okay? The Apostle Paul is writing to a church that is struggling with quarrels and divisions. Those quarrels and divisions have many causes in the church in Corinth. We know this from Scripture. God loves a united church. Psalm 133 and verse 1 says this, How good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Every parent of more than one child knows the burden of strife amongst your children. Right? When you sense argument, tension, fighting, conflict, quarrel, division in your heart, it is like a wet blanket. If you love your kids, it is a wet blanket on your life. And there is very little in life that gives greater joy than seeing children get along very little in in life. And that is true of the body of Christ. So when Paul hears that there are schisms or divisions in the church in Corinth, he cannot help himself. He is compelled to address this issue. John chapter 17, what is important to the Savior? The unity of the church. He, on the eve of his crucifixion, hours before his brutal assault and beating, he says, Father, I pray that they may be one so that the world may know the truth. Unity is critical. It is crucial to the body of Christ. And I think we can assume this. What God hates and forbids, division, Satan will seek to encourage and exploit. And what God loves and encourages, Satan will certainly seek to destroy. You can count on it. If there is strife, division, schism in your life, 
I can assure you of this. It is not the work of God. It is the work of the evil one, of the opponent, of what God loves in his church. And so we must be very careful. The key issue in the context is revealed in two words. I want you to look at verse 10 and verse 11. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that, and I think if you have the New American Standard, it talks about same mind, same thinking, right? Be in agreement so that there may be no divisions. Greek word, schismata. We get our English word, schism. So that there may be no schism among you. Then verse 11, my brothers, some from Chloe's house, and by the way, this tells us how Paul knows about the problem. Someone had the courage to go to Paul and say, Paul, the church that you are the father of, spiritually, before God, is having problems. Okay? In the same way that, uh, uh, let's say Mr. Raider's a teacher at school, he sees uh, a problem in my daughter's life, or Dan Law sees a problem in my daughter's life at school, I would hope that he would come to me because I am spiritually responsible for her behavior. And so someone from Chloe's household, who I'm sure now is the most loved person in all of Corinth, goes to Paul and says, Paul, there is a problem in the church. And I believe that you need to be aware of it. And so that problem is described as schisms or divisions. Verse 11, the word that he uses to describe it, he says, he's informed me, that there are quarrels among you. Okay, that becomes a fascinating contrast. There are divisions that, and, and here's the idea of quarrels, that flare up and burst into flames emotionally. Okay, so there are divisions, and when divisions are unaddressed, what happens? Well, the church and individuals tend to think, oh, I can live with that, it's no big deal. But the next word that Paul uses says that these divisions will ultimately flare up into deep expressions of emotion, and those deep expressions of emotion are what is destructive. In other words, schisms occur. Divisions occur. And when they're not addressed, they flare up. So Paul has a dual concern, divisions, schisms, that ultimately lead to a flare-up of emotions in the context of the body of Christ, which should be characterized by peace. Now, I want to give you three thoughts out of verses 10 through 13 that kind of introduce this topic. Let me just give you these real quickly. This topic of conflict or division. Number one is this. Conflict is likely to occur in relationships. If you have relationships, I can guarantee you that you have something else. You have conflict. Okay? Why? Not because of the other people in your life. Okay? Oh, I know why. My wife. My kids. The people at church. Okay, what do we, we tend to exonerate ourselves, don't we? And I think what the Word of God is pointing out is that every relationship is prone to some degree of trouble or struggle. Don't be blown away by that. Don't think the church perfect, because if you do, you will be severely disappointed. I promise you that. Paul is not afraid to inscripturate under inspiration to record the fact that there were troubles in the church. Why? Because he knew that the instruction that he gives to the church in Corinth would apply to the chapel at Warren Valley in year 2008. He knew that by the direction of God. 
Paul isn't blown away and saying, you know what, I don't think I'm going to be an apostle anymore. You people are always fighting. I'm going to throw in No. He understands that they're likely, and he begins to address them. <clears throat> the Bible anticipates these. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Here's what the Bible says. What is the cause of fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? My child was fine until he went to nursery school. Right? That's what people say. Well, my kid got in that context with those other kids. That was the problem. Okay, well, you know, it's wise to select and to encourage your children to be around good people, but there are no genuinely good people. Every relationship will have conflict. My wife and I, over the last two days, were at a marriage retreat. Why? Because we have a perfect marriage. Right? Ruth said, you want to go to this conference? I said, yes, I would love to hear people talk about our marriage. Now, do you know why family life holds hundreds of conferences across America and that they're attended by hundreds and sometimes thousands of people? You know why? Because it's something that most of us don't want to admit. That my flesh is the cause of likely conflict in my relationships. They're not uncommon. Keep your expectations reasonable. Whenever I deal with people in premarital counseling, I always fire on unrealistic expectations. The way people sit there when they're engaged. After you've been married 27 or 20, how long have I been married? 23 years, okay? It's, it can be troubling. Why? Because you realize that if you assume that that bliss is going to be the norm for the rest of your life, you will be severely disappointed. You won't have a heart that's been cultivated to work, to fight for what honors God in the context of your home. So there were a whole lot of us gathered together, hopefully with the heart to confess that I am not experiencing a problem, but I am part of the problem in the context of my marriage. And I know what most of you are thinking. You know my wife's not the problem. <laughs> I can read minds. Was I right? I knew that. Near perfect she is. Near perfect. Second kind of prelude here is this. When conflict occurs, it must be addressed. Okay, it must, must be addressed. Paul, I am sure, would much rather just simply ignore conflict, division. But he knows if he doesn't address it, it will destroy the body of Christ. And when you destroy the body of Christ, you destroy the purpose for which it exists. Paul cannot abide that thought. What is our tendency when conflict comes? For many of us, it is to try to minimize it. To say it won't hurt us or our objectives, our mission, our purpose. We try to downplay the consequences. We assume that the effects of conflict can be contained, kind of neatly kept within the realm of the house, you know? And as long as no one else sees it, it's not that bad. Faulty assumption. The result is we bury them, we ignore them, or worse, we act as if the fallout of conflict can be managed or contained. The result will be that they will do this. They will consume an inordinate amount of time in your life. And they will steal joy from your life. 
same is true in the body of Christ. The third thing, just by way of intro, is this. Paul firmly yet lovingly confronts the divisions in the church. Why? Because he first reminded them of who they are. Called by God to be under one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not a divided Lord, but one Lord who rules over and protects and cares for his church. His means of correcting it begins in the beginning of verse 10. The New International Version says this, I appeal to you. I think the New American Standard says, I exhort you. This is the idea of not of a coach who belittles his players, but a coach who boldly confronts with the purpose of bringing correction and increasing the effectiveness of the player he is counseling. The word here is to entreat, to appeal. And two times in these verses, verses 10 through 13, Paul identifies the church as family. He calls them brothers. Implication, the brothers and sisters in Christ. I appeal to you. I beg you. Philippians chapter 4, I believe it is, with Phoebe and Chloe. He says, I exhort you. I entreat you. Same way that a parent goes to their children. Hopefully not in the flare-up of anger, but to call them back to remind them you are family. And the idea simply is this. Act like the family of God. Paul graciously and yet boldly confronts the division. The, the word that he uses to talk about the correction is found at the end of verse 10. New, New International, again, once it, it says this. He says, I want you to eliminate divisions and I want you to be perfectly united in the same mind and in the same thought. About what? Is he talking about uniformity? That every Christian has their hair the same. Every Christian wears the same clothes. All I can say to that is, God forbid. He doesn't want us all to be uniform. He wants us to be in agreement about the message that is central to the church. And that is, we have a Savior who by grace rescues us from sin. That's, that's the message. That's what's common to us. Paul firmly, lovingly confronts. What is he saying to them? He says, I tell you to be perfectly united. The idea of this word is fascinating. It's the word for the mending of a net or the resetting of a broken bone. Same word used when it talks about the disciples of Jesus that were fishermen. They were there mending their nets. Correcting what was torn. Why? Because a division is a tear that always results in limited effectiveness. It is true in marriage. It's true in the workplace. It's true in the church. It's true in the broader context of family. Divisions, schisms, will always limit effectiveness. And so Paul goes after it. And, and the basic call here is this. Get your divisions, get your conflicts under wraps. Get it corrected. Reset the bone. Retie the net. Fix what is lacking. Fix the division so that you will increase your effectiveness. Why, and this goes into the main part of my sermon, which is this. Why is Paul so strong? Why is he so motivated? Why can't he abide the trouble? Why can't he ignore it? Why can't he assume that the effects of the conflict can be contained? Why? The first answer to that question in this passage is this. Because conflicts always threaten our mission or our purpose. Conflict 
always threatens mission. Division always affects mission and purpose. That's why in your marriage, if your desire as a Christian couple was to have a home that would reflect the love of God for His church, a division is intolerable because a division, a conflict sustained in the home makes honoring and representing God to the world impossible. The same thing is true in the church. Folks, in conflict, it is never about one person. It is always about more than one. How do conflicts threaten mission and purpose? Because they distract us from the main purpose for which we were called in the body of Christ. They distract us from the purpose for which we exist. They keep us from what we are here to do as the body of Christ. That leads me to the second thought. Why correct it? Well, they threaten mission and purpose. What is the mission and purpose of the church that Paul identifies as being crucial in this text? Or is that, that becomes the, the question that pops in. Get it right. Stop being... Why, Paul? Well, because it limits effectiveness what, in, in our mission. But what is the mission of the church? Why is it so vital? Verse 13 through 17 help us to understand this. And by the way, let me... You might be saying, okay, what is the conflict? Okay? If you look at verse 12, here's what it says. What I mean about this quarrel and division is, one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Another one, I follow Kephas or Peter. And another one, this is the person who gets it right, I follow Jesus. Okay? That's the person who assumes that they're, they're on the higher ground. Okay? The problem was, and it's, it's a little bit, it's left ambiguous, but it certainly relates to the proclamation of the gospel. At least this is present. There is a party spirit. Some people who are more loyal to Paul, who are more loyal to Apollos, who are more loyal to Kephas, who are uh, loyal to Christ. Okay? And Paul's response to this problem is fascinating. He responds to it with questions that point to the purpose of the church. Here's the first one. is powerful. Is Christ divided? And, and literally, if I give you the literal translation, has Christ in the past been chopped up into pieces? That's literally chopped into pieces with an abiding effect. Can a church divided ever adequately represent one Lord and one Christ? It's a rhetorical question. The implied answer, the assumed answer, the answer to the flight. Is Christ divided? No. No. Okay, so at one level, what is Paul arguing? The, the, the person that we proclaim is one Lord. And this comes up in most of the epistles of Paul. We are serving one Lord, one God, one Jesus Christ, one Savior. Okay? That's what we exist to make known. Then Paul goes in, and I love how Paul, this is so self-effacing and so real. Paul doesn't talk about Apollos. He doesn't talk about Kephas. In fact, it, it becomes fairly clear as you work through the next three chapters that the issue isn't Apollos, that the issue isn't Kephas, the issue is not Paul. The issue is people trying to choose their teachers, their favorite people. That's, that's the party loyalties, specific allegiances that threaten the unity to which God has called the body of Christ. So what does Paul say? Is Christ divided? Second question. Was Paul crucified for you? 
You're declaring allegiance to me. Paul says, I have one question that should end this division. Did I pay the ultimate price for your sin? Do I deserve your total allegiance? What is Paul saying? Don't follow me. Don't raise me to that place. I will certainly disappoint you. I will frustrate you. I will let you down. I wasn't crucified for you. Now, which starts to hint at the solution to conflicts and divisions. Get back to the cross, the real cross. Not the suffering of Paul to start this church, but the suffering of Christ to call it from sin into a place of redemption. To make people new. So Paul says, was I, bat- was I crucified for you? Paul saw what was at stake in this issue of divisions. You know, from a human perspective, it's kind of sad to say, isn't it? But if people were dividing up and declaring loyalty to us, most of us would be what? What would our tendency be in our flesh? How would we feel? People come and they whisper, you know, I, I, I like your perspective on things. I, I think you got it right. What are we, what are we, what's our, what's our flesh reaction to that? (laughs) Yeah, we would be at one, and I don't know if Paul was or not. I don't think he is because he's so cross-centered. We would tend to be flattered. Paul is embarrassed. Paul is appalled that they would, that they would think of declaring allegiance to him above Christ. For him, it's an embarrassing thing. It's a serious flaw. And so he's not flattered by it. And then he goes on to ask another question. It's fascinating. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? that, That becomes an interesting question, doesn't it? Were you baptized into Paul, that is, to create a group within the church who could say, we received the baptism from the apostle directly? We had a special, a more special baptism because we had it with one who saw the resurrected Christ in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus. So we have a little bit more of of, of an in, as it were. What does Paul say? He says, no, in fact, I was careful about this. Notice what the text says. Were you baptized into Paul? Verse 14. I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one can say that you were baptized into my name. And then a recollection. Yes, and I also baptized the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I can't remember if I baptized anyone else in Corinth. Well, that becomes interesting. Let me tell you a brief story about Victor John. Victor John in India does no baptisms, virtually none. Why? If they have to wait for Victor John to come to do the baptisms in the churches in India, what will happen to the churches in India? They will become the church of Victor John. He knows that and is wisely avoiding participating in that. Why? Because that is a local church act. That is a family act by which people are publicly identifying with Jesus. The one doing the baptism is irrelevant. Now, some can look at this passage and say, well, is Paul in some way downplaying the importance of baptism? I think we need to affirm very clearly that Paul is not downplaying 
the importance of baptism and obedience to Christ in the waters of baptism, what he is exalting is what? The value of the cross and baptism is simply what? A picture of that reality. Okay, baptism without the cross would be what? Be empty. It would be pointless and meaningless. If in that baptism you're saying, I've been forgiven, I've been redeemed by something that never happened, then the baptism would be gutted of its meaning. What makes baptism important is that it is an act of obedience, confessing faith and trust in Christ. But what makes it really important is that Christ died for our sins. And in the waters of baptism, we are pictured with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Savior. Paul will not abide anything that will gut the cross of its value, that will in some way infringe on the central message of the church. Do you see that? That's what he's concerned about. Anything that would attract attention to a human witness and pull attention away from the Savior is intolerable. It is embarrassing. It is not flattering for the Apostle Paul. This ring on my hand is a symbol. Barely get it off. If you see how big it is, you wonder why I can't get it off. No thing I can play basketball with that. What is this? It's a symbol. I said to my wife, I give you this ring that until death parts us, I am yours only. So I put on this ring that says I am hers only. That is my commitment. And I act in an adulterous manner in my relationship with others. But I say... I got the symbol. I have the message. Here's what Paul's saying. In terms of marriage, that symbol without commitment in my heart is empty. This ring might as well be thrown away. Why? Because what it represents is not true. Same thing is the message with baptism. Paul doesn't want people dividing up over who brought them to Christ and baptized them. Why? Because their baptism is not the means by which they were saved. It is only by the cross of Christ that salvation comes into a person's life. Baptism does not save. It does not redeem. Why is Paul saying this? Look at verse 17. Christ did not send me, and, and you, you have to read in now, primarily to baptize. That was not the primary objective. It followed something. To preach the good news, Paul said, that's why I was sent. He sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, so that the cross of Christ not be emptied, gutted of its power. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, when I came, I could have really turned on the vocabulary and impressed you, as apparently others in the context of the church had. But what is Paul saying? I kept it simple. Why? So that when I went away, you didn't say what a wonderful speaker Paul is. No, what you would say is what a wonderful Savior Paul has. Folks, that's the point. Now, that leads us to one other thought. When Jesus Christ is exalted, when he is not in the second place because of divisions, when he is exalted as the only ground for salvation, what happens? When you focus on the cross, when you sing as we sung this morning about the cross, what happens in your heart? There should be a drawing down before the Savior, a bearing down with gratitude, 
a humbling that in a way disintegrates all of your pride. Why? Because that cross is glorious. It is glorious in what it accomplishes. And so Paul says, verse 18, for the message of the cross. Now, verse 17, Christ sent me to preach the gospel. What is the gospel? If I, if I flip ahead to 1 Corinthians 15, and why don't you do this real quick. Turn ahead to 1 Corinthians 15, verse, I believe it's verse 3. Philippians 15 and verse 3. I want you to see this connection. Paul says, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Idea is simply this. I passed on to you what is supreme in the church. What is most vital. And with what? Without this, the church does not exist. Without this, baptism has no meaning. What is it that Paul proclaims as of first importance it's the gospel what is it christ died for our sins he was buried on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and made appearances to numerous people to prove that he is the one and only redeemer savior and friend of sinners do you get that connection paul says god didn't send me to baptize primarily he sent me to preach the message for and here gives the, why, why preach the cross, Paul? A man died on a guillotine. That's modern terms. He was crucified as a criminal. That's the message Paul is going about the world preaching and then saying that on the third day after that death, he rose again. Right, that's the message of the cross. What is Paul saying? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those being saved, it is the power of God. What's Paul saying? If you've experienced life change, where did you get it? You got it at the cross when the message of the gospel was preached. A deep conviction came over you and you fell to your knees and said, God, I am a sinner who needs a savior, who needs a sin bearer, who needs someone to pay his deep debt. What is Paul saying? The message of the cross is the answer to the deep debt that you and I have. And so, in this passage, there are two groups of people that are specifically addressed. And why is Paul addressing this? And this is the third point of my sermon. When Christ is exalted, when he is proclaimed as supreme, Christians are humbled. And when we're humbled, what happens? Unity rises. Unity rises. Folks, you will not find humble, divided people. If you're struggling with pride and conflict and division in your life, get to the cross. Why? Because there is no personal claim to anything at the foot of the cross. We all stand there with the same need. We all stand there morally bankrupt before God, saying, God, I am a sinner. He is the Savior, and there is only one now, folks, what verse 18 basically means is this. It means that there is no middle ground. There is no alternative for sinners to Jesus Christ. There is no alternative. There is no other hope than the Savior, Jesus Christ, who by His shed blood 
pays the price for our sin and by his resurrection is declared our Lord and Savior. The two groups addressed are those that are perishing and those who believe. Those that are perishing count the message of the cross as what? Stupid. Right? It's foolishness. It, and, and, and if you go down in the text a little bit further, um, look at verse 22. And by the way, what was the disciples' response to the message of the cross when Jesus spoke it before his death? What was their response? Oh, that's, that's, that's utter rubbish. You can hear Peter saying it. Over my dead body. It's rubbish. Why? We want a powerful Messiah who comes to rule and to give us a physical well-being. And what Jesus is saying is you're not ready for that physical well-being until I die and pay the price for your sins so that you can have access into that well-being with God forgiven and redeemed. Do you, do you see the connection? The message of the cross is to those that perish foolishness, but to us who are being saved. Verse 22 tells us about those that are rejecting the message of the cross. He talks about two groups of people, which is synonymous with all of humanity in the ancient world. There were Jews and there were Greeks. Okay, that's the, the way the ancient world looked at life. What are the Jews saying? We want to see a sign we want to see a power display right and this is what they say to jesus do a miracle jesus says to them you won't believe even if one rises from the dead what you really need is not power but you need a savior and the greeks are saying what we desire wisdom because in that time the gnostics the knowledgeable is the idea they were you know what you get to heaven by what you know and so if that's the way to heaven, then why did this man in Jerusalem die on a cross? It sounded to them like what? Foolishness. So you have those that are rejecting the message because their pride is saying, show us power, give us a reason to follow you, or teach us how to follow you. And what Jesus is saying is you can't follow me until you're born again, until you're redeemed, until your sin is conquered, and you have new life. To them it is a desire for the miraculous. To them, it is a desire for wisdom. Verse 22, what does Paul say? But we preach Christ, okay? And what is, it? what is Christ? He is a stumbling block to the Jews, and he is foolishness to, to the Gentiles, but to, to those that God has called, both Jews and Greeks, he is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you see exactly which way that goes? It goes back to the Jew and Greek. Christ is the wisdom of God, this unbelievable truth that God takes on flesh, dies on a cross after living a perfect life. He satisfies the divine wrath of God. He propitiates, he removes the wrath of God and calls us into a personal relationship with himself. And everyone in that relationship is there because God effected a change in their life. You get back to verse one, what does Paul say? To those who are being saved, What's the significance of it? It is in the passive tense. It is not those who are rescuing themselves from the muck of life. It is those who are by God being saved in response to what? Go back to verse 2 of chapter 1. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Verse 18. Those who believe. Who has a changed heart? Who is humbled and drawn to unity? Everyone that God works in the heart of. When they focus on the cross of Christ give up party spirit and a divisive spirit and a broad array of allegiances. When they come to Christ alone, everything in their life changes. 
Folks, do you see what Paul's saying? If you're wrestling with division, remember why you exist. There is a glorious Savior who has come to pay the price for your sin and to call you into a relationship with Himself. The cross will always unite. It will never divide. Why? Because there we are all equal. It eliminates conflict. We come the same, sinners in need. So this morning, here's the question for you. Maybe you came here this morning saying, Tim, the cross to me is foolishness. Doesn't make sense. Can I say this to you? I understand why you would think that way. But this morning, if you sense the Spirit of God drawing you to trust in the cross, the shed blood, the resurrection of a Savior, I beg of you, as Paul would do later, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Come to know Him. Maybe the source of conflict in your life is a lack of regeneration. You've never been reborn. And so conflict and division is the norm. And the cross is not a compelling reason to get it right. Maybe you need to trust in the power of God unto salvation. Verse 21, he says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. That makes me feel real good about my job. Through the foolishness of preaching. Think about that. My dear friend, if you're a Christian, let a love for the cross bind you to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And put aside how you live because you are in Christ, because you are being saved by God. Let that humble your heart. Let that cast aside sin. Let that draw you gloriously to the Savior where when we come to Him, He's not divided. There aren't pieces of Christ that you can be drawn to. There is one Savior. And what He did for you is He died on the cross. Go to the cross. And when you go to the cross, you will be united. That love cancels out. It kills division in the church. One of this morning this. Is there someone you need to go to today maybe before you leave this place to correct the schism before it burst into flames and has a destructive effect on your life on your family on your church on God's church if you need a reason the cross of Christ the cross of Christ the cross of Christ be humbled in his glorious presence, my brothers and sisters. And my friend, if you're here as an unbeliever this morning, all I can say as we sing, come, come. Come to the front and say, Pastor Tim, today I am going to trust in the fullest message of the cross and I am going to believe that by trusting Christ my sins are forgiven and the hope of heaven is mine and I become part of God's family of his bigger work. Father, we thank you for your word this morning.